how much do we really know about the human genome? We've identified countless genetic variants associated with common diseases, but the vast majority of these variants reside in non-coding regions with unknown regulatory effects. In this episode, I sit down with Dr. John A. Morris to talk about his groundbreaking research that sheds light on these mysterious non-coding variants. Join us as we delve into this cutting-edge research and discuss its potential to revolutionize our understanding of the human genome. I'm so pleased to sit down and talk with you about uh, staying sick. But first of all, uh, how does it feel to be back here in Montreal? Ah, uh, it's great. You know, I uh, I spent a lot of time here. Uh, I did do my grad studies in the same department you're in, so. Mm-hmm. I came to the Department of Human Genetics in 2013, and I was there until 2018. I loved every day of it. Mm. And uh, what was your project? Yeah, so my PhD work, uh, because I started in the master's and I did the fast tracking into the PhD like a lot Mm -hmm. of folks do in the department. So I was interested in using large scale um, like human biobank data. Mm-hmm. So these are like large cohorts with hundreds of thousands of people. So like the UK biobank is a big, big example of this in the UK. But in Canada, we also have our own biobanks like the CLSA, like the Canadian Longitudinal Study of Aging, like that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so everyone has like their phenotypes measured. So like, you know, it could be like height, weight. In my case, I was interested in bone density. Mm-hmm. And uh, we also have their genetics measured. So my PhD was spent looking for the genetic determinants of osteoporosis, which is an aging-related bone disorder, through the lens of studying the genetic determinants of bone mineral density, which is uh, the top, well, besides family history, which is like one of the top predictors for diagnosing osteoporosis in the clinic Mm -hmm. or whether or not someone is likely to suffer from a a fracture. Yeah, so that, that's what yeah, I did. Yeah, nice. Uh, so like, how does it tie to your uh, postdoc project and what you're doing right now? Yeah, so when I was doing these genome-wide association studies where we're taking um, like the whole collection of genetic polymorphisms that an individual might have. Mm-hmm. So in total, we might be considering something like um, 40 million single nucleotide mutations across large populations of individuals. We find these regions that are associated with traits of interest. So for example, maybe there is a chunk of like two kilobases of DNA on chromosome one Mm -hmm. and mutations there tend to be associated with like increased bone density in half a million people. So that is a, we call that a, like a a GWAS locus or a locus of interest that Mm -hmm. we want to study. And what we tended to find is that, you know, we see hundreds of these loci popping up when we do these studies, um, which, and then, so we would define these traits as polygenic, meaning that there are likely multiple genes contributing to the one trait. So this is also why we call some traits complex traits, mm-hmm. because it's not like monogenic disorders. Um, one of the classic ones in Canadian science history is cystic fibrosis, where cystic fibrosis is largely caused due to the mutation to a single gene, CFTR. Uh, something like osteoporosis is a more complex disease because it's it's not usually just one gene. It's like hundreds of potential genes with small mutations act like resulting in a large effect. So we noticed that a lot of these mutations uh, were largely mapping to these non-coding regions of the genome. Mm-hmm. So your genome, which is about 3 billion base pairs, 
um, only 2% of that actually encodes um, something that will be turned into a, a functional protein. So only 2% of your genome directly results in um, yeah, proteins. And then so the remaining 98% of your genome is then what we call non-coding, where mm -hmm. the result is not a protein. Um, and then within this non-coding region, uh, regions all across the genome, we found that like 90% of all the GWAS loci map to these non-coding regions. Mm -hmm. So we don't really know what the genes are that we should be studying. And so what I wanted to do then for my for my postdoctoral studies, so I was wrapping up my PhD, uh, I wanted to get into the world of CRISPR genome editing. You know, CRISPR has now won a Nobel Prize. It's mm -hmm. clearly a very hot topic. And I wanted to learn how to design my own studies to use CRISPR in order to study GWAS loci. Mm -hmm. So uh, I can describe briefly what CRISPR is. Yeah, sure. Where um, essentially, well, the origins of CRISPR, what it actually stand, stands for, uh, okay, I'm not going to remember the exact acronym. It's like clustered, repeats, something like that. Mm -hmm. Where it's basically a bacterial defense system where bacteria you, uh, encode these regions of, of their genomes to basically recognize when they have like invading pathogens. And then so CRISPR is a nuclease or the Cas9 protein itself is a nuclease that cuts DNA. And that's how bacteria defend themselves from like infection, for example. Mm -hmm. They'll use this to uh, destroy the invading host, uh, the invader, uh, the invading DNA, for example, or RNA in some cases. So uh, researchers eventually found out that you can use this as a tool to make precise edits throughout the human genome. Um, and I mean, if folks are interested, there's a ton of books, very popular books you can read about this, because again, this did win the Nobel Prize, um, I think two years ago now. Um, like for its uh, first described discoveries in, in, in bacteria, like nucleus cutting function from Jen, uh, Jen Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier. Um, anyway, that's the plug for, I guess, if you want to read about CRISPR literature. But uh, what I was interested in doing with it is we can use it to target specific regions of the genome to try to engineer some sort of perturbations or edits. So I wanted to focus these edits at these GWAS loci where we didn't know what was happening. And so to do that, I applied for um, research labs to join them as a postdoctoral research fellow, uh, basically pitching my idea that I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to take these GWAS loci, I wanted to learn how to do CRISPR genome editing, and I wanted to study them in, in mod some whatever model system so I can try to figure out what's happening at them in a, with a method that is also scalable so that we can, because there are hundreds of these loci. So you don't want to do them one by one. Mm -hmm. You want to try to do multiple ones all at the same time. So that led me to applying to these CRISPR labs. I, you know, towards the end of my PhD, I was flying around a lot, interviewing at these jobs. Um, and I eventually found a lab where they were kind of thinking about doing the same thing. You know, they were, so they were thinking in the same airspace, which was great, which meant they were interested in spending money on it because mm -hmm. uh, these ex kind of exper experiments are not cheap. And that's where I ended up uh, going to do my postdoc. Uh, so I left Montreal and I moved to New York. And uh, I've, I've lived in New York since 2019 as a postdoctoral research fellow at the New York Genome Center in New York University, uh, where I was developing the method, I guess, that we're here to talk today, which is StingSeq. Yeah, but um, I guess before we delve into uh, this, I had a basic question. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that... Uh, like most of the GWAS hits are in the non-coding parts of the genome. 
Uh, so like, why is it really a problem? So like, like, what does it have to be somehow related to a gene? Like, what if it's actually like a non-coding region causing all of these diseases? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it goes down to just trying to understand is really an effort in trying to learn function. So this actually ties back to uh, in in 2012 when when the first ENCODE uh, mm -hmm. papers were published. Uh, it was quite a shock to the community. I mean, um, you, I don't know if you <laughs> were reading papers in 2012, but um, I certainly was, and I remember when those came out. And it was, uh, you know, the tagline was that, um, you know, all this DNA, all this DNA that we thought might have been junk, uh, actually is functional. Mm. Uh, so this, all this non-coding DNA does serve some function, mm. and this upset some folk because. You know, some people believe that in order for DNA to be functional, it also has to be conserved across species, mm -hmm. demonstrating clear function because it's clearly important. Um, but it turns out that a lot of uh, gene regulatory mechanisms might lie in these non-coding regions. Mm -hmm. And it's these regulatory mechanisms that are more fluid across different cell states and different species. So the same gene might be conserved across different species, but how it's regulated, when and where, in what cells at what time, can change across different species and different cell types, for example. Mm -hmm. So the thought here is that you know protein truncating mutations, things that uh, mutations that map directly to genes, um, we would call these our low-hanging fruit. If we do a GWAS and we see this locus is popping up and these mutations tend to just map straight to a gene's exon, so the things that become proteins, we think, great. So clearly these are some mutations that have some impact on a protein. And that's something that we can take to study like how that influences disease risk, for example, try to understand the genetic etiology of a disease. For the non-coding stuff, it really becomes a matter of, you know, sure, we might have some sense of what is that it's functional, but how that function works, we still don't know. That is still mm -hmm. a huge gap in human genetics knowledge. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, there are going to be some non-coding regions of the genome where sure, maybe their function is not to be an enhancer to um, target a specific gene. Um, but the fact is, is that we just don't know that. Mm -hmm. And then so it's through um, studying these non-coding regions where we don't really know what's happening and at least trying to assign genes or some sort of function to them that lets us uh, basically learn more about why um, why why these diseases arise or why these traits uh, can get pretty crazy across individuals. Like why, why do some phenotypes have such a wide variance, for example, mm -hmm. versus others that are very tightly regulated. Um, and in the context of disease research, it's really through studying genes that encode proteins um, that we can start making advances in things like drug development. Mm -hmm. Because if you want to treat someone for a disorder, you have to actually target something, right? And so the easiest thing to target is actually something that would be encoded at the cell surface. So if a, if a cell presents some sort of a cell surface marker, and it's through targeting cells that express specific markers, or it's through trying to like decrease or increase the amount of some sort of marker, that's something that um, you can do with drugs basically that um, could help like alleviate symptoms or treat or maybe be prevent um, preventative to some sort of disorder. Um, so that's why we're broadly interested in finding genes. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, basically the non-coding genome, 
right now feels like this huge opportunity mm-hmm. to, to, de- to develop these scalable methods to, to profile hundreds of loci in, in a single go. Yeah. Um, so I had another basic question. I mean, uh, I get that we're also interested in understanding the biology behind the disease, but why can't we just edit the genome and problem solve, like without necessarily knowing why it works, it just works? Oh, yeah, great question. So it's worth emphasizing that there are going to be multiple different approaches to studying um, just like regions of interest in general in genetics, right? Mm-hmm. So it's something you have to take in consideration of what are the benefits and the drawbacks of specific types of computational in silico experimental and, and like experimental approaches, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, not every cell type is going to be um, targetable by some sort of method. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe like what makes a cell important is its intrinsic in vitro environment or in vivo environment, mm-hmm. right? Uh, for example, a very um, popular uh, tissue that people look at to look at um, genetic mutations that are associated with expression is postmortem brain tissue, right? And and uh, there are large postmortem brain tissue studies trying to identify genetic variants that are associated with you know expression in specific types of brain cells that um, might reveal some things about like uh, Alzheimer's disease, for example, or mm-hmm. schizophrenia risk, for example. It is uh, very hard to do these kinds of CRISPR genome editing experiments in some sort of a brain organoid, right? Like it's not just, it's just yeah. not gonna happen right now with yeah, the current yeah. technologies. <clears throat> so when it comes to um, these perturbation approaches like I talk about, uh, you have to consider whether or not you have a model system that's relevant for the trait of interest that it would actually work in. And if not, you know that could be like a phenomenal project for someone to try to get to try to get it working in a new system for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of research right now in like 3D cell culture. So instead of growing cells flat on a dish or in media where they're floating, trying to grow them into shapes, shapes that might better mimic their um, you know, like naturally occurring physiological shape in your body, for example. Um, and there are other approaches where, you know, you can do research in, in animal models, right? Because then you do get the full in vivo environment, but you've now moved away from the human a bit where maybe the non-coding genome, you know, one of the whole points is that if it's not conserved across species, then it's hard to study the same enhancer that we find in human cells in mouse cells because it just might not be conserved. Mm-hmm. So there are going to be um, benefits and you know drawbacks from from all of these approaches, and then so I think the best thing you can do for to study these regions is to really accumulate uh, orthogonal sources of, of evidence, right? So you make it so that the burden of evidence clearly demonstrates that like there is this function, you know, mm-hmm. and we can demonstrate that through a variety of angles. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So I think uh, we can. Uh... Uh, move on to his things, uh, Stink. Uh, so first of all, uh, what does it stand for? Uh, yeah, so Stink-Seq is an acronym for Systematic Targeting and Inhibition of Non-Coding GWAS Loci with Single Cell Sequencing. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things in doing these, um, these studies is, you know, well, first off, if you're writing a paper, 
it's helpful to have an acronym so that you're not constantly writing a huge, you know, sentence yeah. of text every time you want to talk about a method, right? So we, we give stuff acronyms. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, we think it's a useful uh, descriptor of really the whole workflow. Mm -hmm. uh, because what we are really doing is starting from a place of of human genetics with, with genome-wide association study data. And we're taking it all the way through to like experimentation and, and sequencing. Uh, so uh, can you describe the, like the, the whole workflow and walk us through the whole method, please? Yeah, of course. So um, the first step comes from taking the study that you're interested in profiling, the genome-wide association study that you're interested in. So for example, um, to develop and, and um, you know, optimize the approach, um, I started off using blood trait GWAS loci. So these are going to be highly polygenic traits, for example, of uh, platelet count. So you, know, you go for a blood draw um, within like a, one ml of your blood, they can measure the number of platelets that they can count. This becomes a quantitative count trait that you can then study through the lens of genome-wide association studies, and you can find regions of the genome that are associated with like increased or decreased platelet levels across individuals. Mm -hmm. um, we take these, uh, these GWAS, and then we perform a procedure called statistical fine mapping. Mm -hmm. Because without that, you know, the genome is not, it's not like each individual base pair is completely independent of its adjacent base pair there is a high degree of linkage disequilibrium, which is something mm. that um, if you have a background in science, you might recognize from like your high school uh, biology courses, I think. Um, I think it's taught in high school biology. And the idea there is, you know, you're going to have large chunks of the genome that are that comprise a haplotype and are then inherited um, broadly. So, and we have these recombination hot points, right? Where part, that's, that's how you become a mix of your parents, where... Uh, due to recombination, you know, parts of the genomes uh, between two different sets of chromosomes will flip, will exchange information, and you get a new person out of that. So because of linkage disequilibrium and recombination, uh, you see a lot of co-correlation between associated genetic variants. So what that means is in a given run of like, let's say, 100 kilobase pairs, you might see thousands of mutations all associated with the one trait. It's unlikely that these thousands of mutations in this one locus are all going to be causal. A lot of them might simply just be along for the ride because they happen to be on the same haplotype as something that is truly causal. Mm -hmm. So the first step really that we do in StinkSeq is we perform statistical fine mapping to try to identify what are the predicted causal variants. And this is also to bring down our search base from a very wide set of, again, in some cases, hundreds of variants that we don't think are important or, or functional to a much smaller set of maybe like one to five to 10 variants mm. that we do think are driving the signal because statistically, they seem to be the ones responsible for association peaks. Yeah. So these, there's a, a lot of methods to do statistical fine mapping. So it's about picking, I guess, like the, the latest and the best one, you could say. Uh, they all function quite similarly, where they basically derive from uh, using uh, co-correlation matrices of, of these genetic variants and try to deconvolve them into independent signals. So once we have our set then, like our smaller set of genetic variants that we think are likely causal at each of these loci, that's when we start to move into and consider what system are we actually going to study these in. So for blood traits, for example, 
I talked about platelet count. It could be red blood cell count, something like that. Um, the cell model I used here in this case is, um, is actually a cancer cell line that researchers have used for years now to study hematopoiesis. And that's because um, when we do CRISPR, it's much easier to do it in immortalized cell lines that continuously divide. Because to mm -hmm. do CRISPR, um, these like large-scale pooled CRISPR screens, you need cells that can culture and grow and divide so that we can apply selective pressure to them. Yeah. And um, K562 is the cell line that I'm using here. So it's a very commonly used cell line. It's been demonstrated repeatedly that it's good for modeling hematopoiesis. And that's because it looks a lot like a hematopoietic stem cell that you can, and you can actually take this, this cancer cell line that looks kind of like a hematopoietic stem cell. And you can actually differentiate it into red blood cells or platelet cells by applying um, different treatments to the growth media. So they grow in, in 3D and well, in, in, uh, in suspension. So they, so, you know, like how blood is a suspension. So they grow in a suspension. Uh, and then uh, we, we basically wanted to use them then in order to try to study these blood trade loci. So we'll, we'll take our cell model of interest, or it could be a primary tissue, and we will generate what's called open chromatin data mm -hmm. or another form of, well, and then so open chromatin data is used to try to identify what are the regions of the genome that seem to be active. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter where that is. We just want to know that it's active. You would later go back and you know it'll tell you like this 300 base pairs is active. You know, what I then do is I say, okay, does it map to a gene or is it non-coding? Because if it maps to a gene, that's just telling me that that gene is likely expressed in K562, which is great. That, I mean, that's fine, but that's not what I'm interested in. So I use all these open chromatin regions that are at the non-coding genome, mm -hmm. and I intersect the, the fine map variants I talked about earlier. The things that I think might be causal, I intersect them with the list of regions that are functional to try to get a list of variants that I think might both be functional and causal, all right? Mm -hmm. and then, so now that I have these regions, these are the regions that I want to target with CRISPR. Specifically, the type of CRISPR that I use here is called CRISPR inhibition, or uh, I mean, there's a few ways to describe it, CRISPR silencing, CRISPR off, CRISPR inhibition, CRISPR interference. The, the idea is the same, where we take this Cas9 protein that we can target to almost anywhere in the genome, we actually um, re remove its ability to cut DNA. So it's no longer going to cut DNA. It's just going to go somewhere wherever we tell it to, and it's just going to sit there, um, although it can be displaced by transcription. So it'll bind somewhere, and then it'll get displaced eventually, but it'll bind again and get displaced, and bind again and get displaced. Um, but what we do is we actually tether these uh, transcriptional domains to the, to the dead Cas9, and then so now when it binds somewhere, it's also going to recruit um, transcriptional repressor elements and it'll induce closed chromatin. So essentially, you can, you can imagine this like if you target it to a gene that's expressed, you can turn off that gene's expression. Mm -hmm. If you target it to an enhancer, you can turn off that enhancer's function. So you can take open chromatin and you can close it and you can silence genes or enhancers. And and yeah, basically, you know, we take this uh, these these CRISPR I methods, um, and then we basically target them to all the regions that we're interested in, and then so we're targeting hundreds of regions at once. So we do what's called a pooled CRISPR screen, uh, because there are arrayed screens and pooled screens, 
arrayed screens mean I'm going to have, let's say, I want to study six different genes. And so in my, in my lab, what we would do, I would sit down at my, my bench and, and in my cell culture room, and I would have six different wells in front of me, and each well would get a different CRISPR perturbation. So I've done it in an arrayed format, one by one by one by one by one. Mm -hmm. So this is very low throughput. You get a lot of insight into the one target, but it's low throughput because you have to do each thing one by one. In a pooled screen, we do the entire CRISPR screen. We can target hundreds of thousands of things, really. Like These things can get massive. And it's all mixed together. So I have a population of cells, and I treat them with a massive pool of different uh, like CRISPR guide RNAs to target different regions of the genome. And, and this is what I do. And what I do next is I actually perform single cell sequencing. So the idea here is that I'm interested in studying you know, hundreds of loci at the same time. I don't want to do the experiment one by one by one by one. So I'm doing a pooled screen. And now what I'm going to do is I'm going to sequence every single one of these cells. So this will be tens of thousands of cells that I'm sequencing here. And for each individual cell, I'm going to get its full transcriptome. So I'm going to know what genes are expressed in that cell. And I'm also going to get what CRISPR guide RNAs or CRISPR perturbations that they received. And this is what's going to let me, at high throughput, identify these um, non-coding GWAS loci, these functional regions. It's going to tell me what their target genes are, basically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that's that's StingSeq in a nutshell, is what I would say. Yeah, yeah that was perfect. So um, can you think of any like interesting or novel findings that you've had so far? Yeah, sure. So you know, one of the things that was important for us to check is basically what was the distance of the things that we perturbed to the genes that they're regulating, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because you know, one of the simplest met metrics that we use for GWAS is when we don't know what the gene is because it's non-coding, we'll just take the, whatever single variant is at the top of the peak, most significantly associated, and we'll just assign the closest gene. And this can be closest gene by gene body, by transcription start site. Uh, it, it, it can vary from study to study. Mm -hmm. But this is generally like the default approach. Um, it's just to assign a gene name to a locus. Uh, we found, which is what which is great, is that you know most of the genes are actually the closest gene to the the thing that we targeted, uh, which is good, right? Because you know a lot of studies um, operate under this assumption. <laughs> what we did find, though, is in some cases, is that it was not the closest gene. Off, uh, in some cases, that was the target. So, for example, we have a locus uh, where we target this intergenic enhancer, which means it sits in between. It doesn't map to a gene's intron or anything. It's completely sitting between genes. And you know, when you do this, it's hard to know what the target gene might be. And this enhancer had a um, it had a gene that was closest to it by gene body, mm -hmm. so a gene ended close to it. And it had a gene that was closest to it by its start site. So it had a gene that began close to it. And then there was another gene that was nearby that was the second closest by whatever metric. And what we saw when we perturbed this is that it was actually that second closest gene by whatever metric that was actually the target gene at this locus. Mm -hmm. So it's possible then that you were, if you were studying this locus and you wanted to know what genes were of interest, you might have been looking at the wrong genes, for example. 
And um, another neat example, I think, though, is this idea, and I've talked about it, where you know we want to find these protein coding genes. So, and you ask, you know, what if the function is is not in the protein coding genome, right? And there are certainly going to be cases where what's actually happening is some sort of a functional non-coding RNA, where you know RNA is transcribed, but then it's not translated into a protein. So we do have some examples where it turns out the thing that we turned off was not an enhancer. It was actually what's called a microRNA host gene. And these are going to be short um, non-coding RNA transcripts that within themselves contain microRNAs, which are then used to go off and target you know, whatever hundreds of genes. So this highlights that when we study GWAS loci, you know, our, our immediate assumption is often to look at what is the closest protein coding gene. But then we find these examples where sometimes it's not the closest gene, and in other cases, it's not even a protein coding gene. So we have to expand uh, the way we approach really when we uh, when we dissect these loci to to be more mindful of other types of um, genes that might be regulated and maybe consider not only the closest but like maybe at a starting point you might consider like maybe the closest three or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and like. Uh, what is the like the overall feedback that you uh, got uh, from other researchers and the community? Oh yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's been a lot of positive feedback. Um, so, well, uh, I will say that the paper has been accepted for publication, so it'll be coming out in a journal at some point, mm -hmm. and um. um and the paper has enabled a lot of good things for my career. So for example, I've presented uh, like the StingSeq project and, and uh, at some major international conferences. So at the American Society of Human Genetics meeting, which is the largest assembly of human geneticists in the world. So um, something like seven to 8,000 individuals attend on a given year. Uh, for, for that, you know, for trainees that attend, so that can be PhD students or it can be postdocs, um, uh, they have these uh, excellence awards where they will competitively score submitted abstracts for research, mm. and then they will decide on a set of semifinalists or finalists. And um, in, the, in the in the year that I submitted StingSeq, I was named a finalist, and that was really cool. That means like there is like a really strong uh, interest in StingSeq from the human genetics community at large, mm -hmm. because out of hundreds of submitted abstracts, they thought the work was interesting enough to make it to the finals of these like excellence awards. Um, but it's actually a competitive award where once you get past that abstract scoring phase, uh, they actually uh, give the award based on the presentation itself. And then so this is actually a major achievement of mine, I think, where I actually won the award uh, for StingSeq. So, um, so that is... That is basically like a really strong indicator that there is like community interest in seeing these types of methods come to the forefront, and specifically in the way I've chosen to go about doing it. Um, it's also received talks at other major uh, genomics conferences, such as the Biology of Genomes, mm -hmm. which is a major annual recurring conference over at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Um, so I received a talk there. You know, and I got a lot of feedback there too, which was really helpful from other other professors around the U.S. and Canada and, and abroad. Um, what else? So, using 
a lot of the work from the Stingseed preprint, which is you know what what I use for a lot of these uh, applications for things like that. Um, I've also received uh, federal funding grants to develop it further. Mm -hmm. So in the states, you can apply for uh, postdoctoral grants from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. It's like their version of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, CIHR. And um, yeah, I basically have like um, a major training grant uh, where if I open up my own research lab in the States, it also translates into basically what would be my first uh, independent federal funding grant, uh, mm-hmm. all for developing StingSeq further. Yeah. yeah. So there is also like, there's community interest from human geneticists uh, broadly, and there's uh, federal interest from a funding perspective because uh, the mandates of some of these uh, research institutes in the States and in Canada are to profile the function of the non-coding genome. Yeah, and uh, these are all just uh, the beginning for StingSec. Um, um, I was uh, at your talk today, and you mentioned something, uh, B-Sting. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about the future direction of this thing. Yeah, so one of the key things here is really in how modular the approach is where uh, StingSeq represents like a workflow to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like an encompassing word for, for this whole workflow that I have. And one of the key components in library design and in the experimentation is the type of CRISPR protein that you use. So I talked about using this dead Cas9 fused to these transcriptional repressors to do uh, CRISPR inhibition. So B-Sting-Seq, where the B-E-E in, in B-Sting comes from base editing, because the, there is an E at the end of the first base of uh, the word base, so we, we're being a little mm-hmm. cheeky about it. But um, that comes from replacing the type of Cas9 that we use with, uh, well, the Cas9 specifically was replaced with a Nicase. So usually wild type Cas9, SB Cas9, makes a double-stranded break. The dead Cas9 makes no breaks. A Nicase makes a single-stranded break. And it does that in order to initiate DNA repair. So by causing a lesion in the genome, repair mechanisms will come along and it'll fix whatever happened. So this Nicase is actually fused to um, these uh, like mutagenases, which will mutate cytosines into thymines. So in this way, if the GWAS allele is a T and the reference genome is a C, we can mutate that C into the T to try to directly study the GWAS variant. Because uh, what we're doing with CRISPR inhibition is really turning off a large genomic region, which should have a large effect, which is good because we want to try to actually find these effects, right? Mm -hmm. But now if we're interested in really profiling the effect of every single genetic variant, one way to get there is through these uh, mutagenesis approaches, where we directly engineer the variant itself into the into the endogenous genome, and, and then so that that's beasting seek. It's it's doing um, a very similar approach, but we're switching out the effector, where it's no longer CRISPR I. It's now CRISPR base editing. Mm-hmm. And um, looking forward, um, so we know that the like the GWAS field is uh, moving towards like genomic diversity and integration of like more data sets into the genetic uh, data. How does it impact the the, the uh, StingSeq? Yeah, that's a great question. So as GWAS continue to grow larger and larger, mm-hmm. we're going to keep finding more of these loci. So it'll be important to maintain these types of methods development approaches 
so that we can study these new emerging loci as they come out. You know, maybe, um, maybe as larger studies come out, it'll become routine to do a quick follow-up CRISPR screen of just the new loci that you found, just to see what what is what happens when you perturb them in a, in a mm -hmm. trait-relevant cell model. Um, and then in terms of other omics that are being integrated, there are also going to be other types of uh, CRISPR Cas9 effectors that are developed as well. So, for example. Uh, instead of targeting DNA, you can target RNA with uh, other types of Cas9. Uh, in, uh, instead of using Cas9, you can use something like Cas13, for example. Mm -hmm. um, alternatively, there are going to be other approaches for base editing, where um, you know these base editors can be great for making these small one or two nucleotide mutations. But what about engineering larger mutations? What if we wanted to stick like a giant insertion into a region because maybe mm -hmm the GWAS found in insertion is actually what's driving the signal. So you would have to change your approach with the, on the CRISPR side of things. So there are methods such as prime editing, which allow you to make insertions of, of up to a certain length. Um, I think what I've seen in the literature is it kind of gets capped at around 10 to 15 nucleotides in size. Uh, but I'm sure that's going to grow uh, if it hasn't already. But we can also do other methods, like older methods, really, that are today being optimized, where you can use homology-directed repair to flip in um, templates of interest, so where you've engineered a series of mutations, for example. So I think it's a matter of, yeah, the the experimental side will, will be developing on its own track, mm -hmm. and it's about uh, seeing what could be useful from, from a gene editing, editing side to study like these emerging GWAS loci with these emerging new omics data integrations, yeah. Mm. And uh, you know, in your opinion, how efficient uh, is uh, this thing is? Like, I'm just curious from like start to finish, how long does it take? Oh, um, let's see. So let's say you know how to do your GWAS and if you wanted to do your own GWAS uh, methods today for large scale data sets, you can, they will run, I think, in about a day now with mm -hmm. using a computational cluster. Uh, in my PhD, it took us five days because um, the methods weren't faster back then. You know, so that's already a week of your time, perhaps. Um, but then, you know, and the fine mapping will also take a few days. So this is all computational, computationally expensive. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes down to doing the actual experiment uh, for things like cell culture, you're looking at um, maybe a month or two sometimes to generate the cell model of interest. Uh, because what we like to use are actually these cell lines, right? I mentioned we use cell lines. We actually uh, make the cells endogenously express the Cas9 protein. Because uh, Cas9 is useless without a guide. Like without a guide, it doesn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So what we're actually doing is we're forcing the cells to just always express Cas9. And then when we want to do the experiment, we inject them with just guides. And then now the, the Cas9 is useful. It, it activates it. It has a guide, and it goes off and it does its thing. So developing these cell lines can take a month to two months, unless you really know what you're doing, because it can be hard um, to do that, especially if you want to have a monoclonal cell line versus a polyclonal. Where um, And the difference in that is basically like the consistency of how much Cas9 is being produced in a given cell at a given time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that can take a month or two. And then it comes down to doing your experiment and applying selection. So for example, when we um, 
lentivirally transduce our cells with a CRISPR pooled guide RNA library. Um, we'll select our cells under antibiotic selection for about a week to two weeks. And that's to ensure that all the cells that we're going to study all definitely have the CRISPR guide RNAs. Because if they, because what we do is, is along with delivering the CRISPR guide RNAs, we also on the same plasmid deliver antibiotic resistance. So uh, drugs like pyromycin, um, blastocytin, um, hygromycin, these types of these types of antibiotics are used to to select for cells and culture. So that's another two weeks, I suppose. And you do your single cell sequencing and single cell sequencing library prep. That's about a week. Uh, you have to wait for your data to get sequenced. That can mm -hmm. take up to a week to a month, depending on the service that you go with. And then you have to analyze your data. And that's that can be a real tricky part. Because if you're doing something novel, something at the cutting edge, there's not going to be a lot of um, you know, references for you to look through. So you, so you might have to come up with your own tools, computational tools to do the analysis. Uh, so I would say you're looking at, at its fastest, like a half year project to do if you hit every step perfectly, mm -hmm. I think. So it, it takes me about, um, you know, for, for a large screen, I maybe spend a year on it because I spend months analyzing it too, because there's so much data to go through. Because we're actually we're generating these large matrices upon matrices of like genes expressed per cell, and there's just a lot of different ways to deconvolve it, to study it, to parse it. So you know the data that I talk about and present is just a snippet of like the full scale of the data that I've actually generated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, since I have no idea about WetLab, uh, two questions: uh, which one is more expensive, uh, the computation or the experiments? Uh, the sequencing, I would say, is the most expensive part. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, single cell sequencing specifically is quite expensive. And it's because um, you have to think about how much uh, sequencing reads you need per cell. So typically in a bulk experiment where you have one sample and you generate its, uh, you, know, you, you, you generate a, a cDNA sequencing library from a single sample, uh, you might be able to sequence it pretty cheaply on a smaller on a smaller flow cell. So, like you know, one of the cheapest um, amounts to sequence a cell would be on an aluminum iSeq, and this would give you about I think like two million reads or two hundred million reads. Sorry, and this would be two thousand mm. um, dollars. I would need, for example, at least twenty thousand reads per cell, and if I'm sequencing. 50,000 cells, that's 20,000 reads per cell times 50,000, right? And that's not even accounting for other modalities. Like I also need to allocate some of the sequencing reads to, to guide RNAs, not just the transcriptome, for example, stuff like that. And then so then you start looking at, okay, so I need to use a larger, more expensive flow cell through, for like Illumina sequencing, for example. And that's where uh, some of them can start costing like ten thousand, fourteen thousand dollars for the for some of the largest ones to get like uh, billions of sequencing reads that you would need to do these experiments. Mm -hmm. So that's where things start to get, I think, in my in my opinion, really expensive. 
Um, although I suppose if you're not very efficient with usage of things like uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, you might end up spending a lot of money on computational uh, costs if um, if you like leave your cluster running for too long yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And uh, the second question and the last question on Stinkseek, um, so like how labor intensive is this? Um, so cell culture, the where you know you're keeping cells alive in a dish and you're treating them with antibiotic and stuff like that. Depending on the type of cell that you're working with, you don't need to be in there every day. Mm. Um, with these cancer cell models, you're typically in there every other day, or you you check on them on Friday. You put them in a state so that they won't overgrow uh, until the end of your weekend, where you come in on Monday and you check on them again. So you, mm. it might be like Monday, Wednesday, Friday is when you would check your cells. Other aspects, though, can be quite demanding, where when you are like uh, doing lentiviral transductions, for example, there are some tight time points you have to consider where you need to return to them 12 hours later, 24 hours later, that kind of stuff. Um, if you're working with stem cells, too, for example, that requires daily attention, or T cells, mm -hmm. like immune cells, that requires daily attention uh, at times. And... Um, and then when you're doing things like uh, generating your sequencing libraries, where you run your cells through these single cell machines, um, you're basically working now with DNA in a tube at this point. Mm -hmm. And to get that to the point where you can sequence it, you know, you can sequence it as soon as you're done. So why not just sit down and get the work done? So when I'm generating my sequence, uh, single sequencing libraries, single cell sequencing libraries, I'm in the lab in the morning and I stay until like the evening and I do that for a few days straight because it takes a few, it takes hours to do this because uh, there will be a lot of wait steps where you have to use PCR and you can't speed that up. It takes time to do PCR or it'll take hours sometimes. Um, not this PCR, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm in the in the PCR <laughs> at CQUT, but um, polymerase chain reaction, of course. Um, it'll just take hours sometimes because yeah. you need to go through like 30 different cycles and the cycle has to be like 40 seconds each time yeah. and you have a ramp up and a ramp down period you can't speed that up so mm. that can be time consuming um and then of course there is the aspect of how long does it take computationally to analyze some of these things where despite my efforts to parallelize uh, analyses as much as i could taking up most of the cluster it'll still take a week sometimes of uninterrupted cluster usage launching um, job arrays, uh, like thousands and thousands of job arrays, basically running a lot of small, computationally cheap, but time-consuming processes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Uh, I think that was great on uh, Stingseek. So now in this section, I want to ask you for some advice. And uh, with you, I know I can go many directions because you've had such a rich and diverse uh, journey, uh, moving from different fields and uh, like uh, between countries. But uh, one thing that really caught my eye was that you've been really successful with like uh, all these scholarships and grants uh, in both Canada and in the state. Um, so like, what is your general, like a uh, general advice or like, do you have any, I don't know, a special workflow for writing a grant or something? Yeah. Um... Well, my general advice would be to apply to as many grants as you can, mm -hmm. uh, especially in grad school. So something that might be lost on some students is it's really hard to get, I mean, I mean, if you apply to grants, you'll know this, it's really hard to get your first gr training grant. Mm 
So as a master's student in Canada in human genetics, you might apply for the CIHR master, the CGSM, right? I never got that. It was really hard where the reviewer feedback is a lot of like, oh, does not have any funding already, you know, or does not have any publications, mm -hmm. right? It's really hard. Once you get that first grant, that starts opening up the door to get more grants down the road. Mm -hmm. So you can apply to smaller grants. So like in Quebec, you can apply to... Um, at McGill, there are faculty of medicine grants, for example, they're smaller. Uh, I did my PhD at the Lady Davis Institute over at the Jewish General Hospital in Cote d'Ivoire. And I applied for the LDI studentship there and I got that, you know? Mm -hmm. And then it's through demonstrating that your research is fundable, it makes larger federal funding agencies more comfortable funding your work because clearly these other agencies are also interested in funding it. So there is a snowball effect in science yeah. where um, on one extreme end of the spectrum, it does seem like the rich keep getting richer mm -hmm. because people who get funding keep getting more funding, right? Mm -hmm. So that is the that is the hardest thing I think is, is getting started. It's similar for uh, publishing. Mm -hmm. So publishing is um, the single most important currency that you will have as a researcher if you're interested in a career in academia yeah. where you need to demonstrate that you can publish at a consistent and high level. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have published quite a lot in my PhD, which helped um, hold me over while I tried to do this very long experimental postdoc where my paper... Um, is now accepted for publication, but it took me years to get there, which is very difficult. But I've still experienced a lot of success from funding agencies during my postdoc because I've demonstrated already in my PhD that I can publish at a high rate. I'm just trying to do something very difficult, you know, that I yeah. haven't done before. So, um, you know, people will only believe you so long as you can show examples. Mm -hmm. So when you're writing grants, you're going to want to have uh, you're going to want to be able to point to something that you can say that you did to support whatever you're writing about. So if you're writing a grant to do this big project, it would help to at least have done some sort of preliminary analysis to demonstrate that it is possible, because otherwise they might just not believe that you can do it if you're just proposing experiments out of thin air. So these are the types of things that, you know, if you want to get grants and keep getting grants, you know, you can start small at the beginning, but then don't stop there. Apply for bigger and bigger grants because small grants can become big grants over time. And always try to have some sort of preliminary data to point at in your grants to say, like, I can do this, you know, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, please give me money so I can do more. <laughs> yeah. And um, how was it like switching from dry lab to wet lab? And like uh, in, uh, I would say in particular, you just mentioned that... Um, yeah, it took you like months to publish your uh, 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 sting sick paper because of all of the experiments. But obviously, when you're like behind the computer, it's just like it's easier to publish. So, like, did you see any like difference, or like in terms of like uh, dry lab people have an advantage in terms of publishing? Uh, well, I should first clarify. Um, I think both are quite hard to do. Like publishing is hard no matter mm -hmm. no matter what you're doing first off. Um, and I published a lot of computational work in my PhD uh, also because I was I worked with uh, co-authors. Mm -hmm. So um, almost all my papers in my PhD, I, I'm like co-first author with someone else. That's really helpful, especially if you're just getting started as a trainee. 
to work with someone who has a bit more experience or maybe is in the same position as you and you can really push each other to to get to publication. Um, the postdoc work has taken uh, actually years to publish largely because it's just me driving the full project. Like yeah. I'm the sole first author on that, on an experimental paper. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's a lot of work that I've had to do myself. And after all the experiments were done, you know, it, it's taken months to do the computational work now, because again, there's just so much data. So it's not necessarily that one is a lot easier than the other, you know, similar to how you have to learn how to use a new wet lab technique. Uh, when it comes time to analyze your data, especially if you generated something new that maybe mm -hmm. no one's done before, how do you analyze something that's completely new? You have to build the tools for that, right? And I have some collaborators I'm very thankful that I have for that uh, down at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, um, but yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, but um, so like, and what made you switch? Was it mm. more like uh, at this point to me, dry lab is repelling or wet lab is attractive? Mm, I see, I see. I think I could have had a very productive postdoc mm -hmm. if I stayed in the purely computational side because it, it did feel like a more natural extension of my current work. Uh, and a lot of people do do that and go off to be very successful. Me personally, I'm interested in being um, like a, a faculty member. Like mm -hmm. I want to have my own research lab. And um, I felt in order to be the best um, like professor for a research lab that I could be, I should know how to do these experiments that I want done in my own lab. Yeah. So I did uh, what I feel like was a big gamble, which is I went off and I took all my wealth of experience in bioinformatics and statistical genetics and genetic epidemiology and human genetics and stuff. And I went and I did a lot of experimental work, right? Uh, and largely from scratch because outside of uh, undergraduate tutorials where I was in a lab, I hadn't been in a lab for like over five years at least, mm -hmm. not in any type of high, high level research capacity. So I did it in order to make myself into the type of scientist that I also want to mentor, where uh, in terms of my own mentorship philosophy, I would like to, if students are interested, you know, I would like them to be able to generate their own data and analyze it too. So um, now, for example, we're seeing a lot of experimental individuals trying to learn more computational work because yeah. that's becoming more and more necessary to be a successful scientist. Yeah. So especially after COVID. Exactly. Yes. And then, uh, actually, one of your points, um, it was harder being an experimental researcher during COVID. Yeah. Because um, you know, I, I live in New York and um, we got shut down. Uh, we were one of the first cities to get really shut down by mm -hmm. COVID in, in March, 2020. And um, I was actually right about to, uh, I had just finished uh, selecting my cells with antibiotic. I had treated them with the CRISPR guide RNA library and, and, and I was about to run them through my first ever big single cell experiment. Mm. And we got the order to shut down the lab. So me and my colleagues, we all had to put our experiments literally like in liquid nitrogen. We had to stop them all. And we had to go home and we had to just stay there until further notice. Yeah. And then it was it was months until I could get back into the lab. So I tried to keep myself busy um, by, you know, uh, trying to come up with these short 
computational projects that weren't really on my radar, you know, mm -hmm. to keep myself busy with also, you know, the stress of COVID happening yeah. before vaccines were available. Uh, it was a scary time. And, um, and the stress of knowing that I was so close to generating data and now it's on pause mm -hmm. uh, indefinitely, that was, that was really hard. And of course, now it's fine. Like we went back into the labs eventually. I redid the experiment. Everything's fine. But uh, that was a slowdown I experienced that I was very aware of that if I had gone into a completely computational postdoc, I might not have experienced. Mm -hmm. And uh, how has been your experience moving from Canada to the U.S.? And uh, what is your advice for people who want to get into a top tier university in the U.S.? Ah, that's a great point. So it's a bit different if you want to go to the U.S. for grad school than a postdoc. So I think for grad school, you would have to do some sort of standardized testing. Of course, I did my PhD in Canada, so I don't really have experience there. Mm -hmm. But in general, postdocs in academia, are um, there's a bit of a shortage. So if you wanted to go do a postdoc in the States, um, you should be able to do so, I think, as long as um, it's a good fit. You know, I don't think there's a high barrier to that. Um, some of the big differences, I think, come down into... You know, I think the things that they talk about in the media, you know, like uh, healthcare is obviously a big thing. So if you go and do your postdoc, you know, you will have, you know, you'll be an employee at a university or a research institute. You'll have healthcare. It's just the way in which it's you know, managed is very different where now it's mm -hmm. all of a sudden very private. So like you have to get used to just like thinking about, you know, I, I want to go to the doctor, I have to pay this copay and and then my insurance will take care of the rest, mm -hmm. which is very different from Canada where I feel like I just go to a doctor and it wasn't clear to me how the financial transaction mm -hmm. part of it worked, you know? Um, so that's kind of like a bit of a culture shock. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're Francophone and you move to the States, obviously mm -hmm. uh, uh, very few people are going to speak French, um, kind of like, you know, outside of Quebec, I guess. But um and then I think something that I never really appreciated living in Canada too is the amount of Spanish that's spoken in the States. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's much more common than I guess it is in Canada for sure. Um, what are some other of the differences? From a research perspective, you know, you are having to switch to different funding bodies. Mm -hmm. So the type of application you write for CIHR is different than the type of application for NIH. CIHR applications for studentships are actually quite short. It's like a one-page, two-page research statement, one-page, two-page training expectations. Some of these uh, equivalent grants in the U.S. are like 10 pages, 12 pages. Mm -hmm. um, so they can be quite long and, um, and very comprehensive. Uh, and then, you know, in Canada, we have the, I don't know if you've had to deal with the, the horrors of the Canadian common CV. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people gripe about it. Uh, th so they don't use that there they have instead to call like the NIH biosketch so now you mm -hmm. have to maintain your NIH biosketch you know so there's a lot of similarities but there's these so you know th things feel similar but are different if that makes sense uh and if you come from a big city and you go to a big city I mean the culture in a big city is going to be I think largely translatable mm -hmm. um and last question what do you think has contributed the most to your success Well, I think something important to consider is the luck aspect of academia, right? Mm -hmm. There is truly a lot of people in academia that benefit from being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So in my own PhD, 
you know, obviously, um, you know, like my mentors, my support group, my colleagues, you know, they're all crucial for having um, a good experience in, a, in like a learning environment, learning skills and applying yourself to problem solving. But when it comes to actually publishing big papers, publishing high impact research in large journals, no matter how hard you work, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Mm. So that is where the luck aspect does unfortunately come into this, where in my PhD, the UK Biobank had come out and this was half a million um, like genomes that we could study. And it was, it was like a PhD in a pressure cooker because we had to be the first ones to publish yeah. because this data was publicly available. So we worked like crazy fast, worked throughout the night, collaborators across the world, constant early morning calls and, and stuff like that to get those studies done. And because we did, we published them in, in high-end journals, right? If the UK Biobank and other resources like it weren't available, you know, I still would have a PhD, but um, maybe the studies I published would have looked quite different, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think everyone, de depending on their, sort group, uh, their support group, you know, good mentorship, good colleagues will have a great learning experience, become very capable individuals. But we have to accept that there is this large randomness aspect too, to academia in actual publication and success. You know, if you are one of thousands of people applying for one position, um, you getting that position, there's going to be some randomness attached to it where someone yeah. just happened to pay more attention maybe on your application than a different one, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sitting down with me. Any last words? Um, yeah, no, thank you very much for inviting me to be on your show. Uh, it's been a, it's been a great chat, I think. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please leave us a great review on your favorite podcasting platform, and I'll see you again next time.